This week on Geeksplained, we're taking a look up in the sky as we put the Geeksplained spotlight on one of my favorite comics of all time, Superman Birthright. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is the latest edition of our Geeksplained Spotlight series, where every single month I take a look back at a comic book, graphic novel, limited series, or whatever, and basically talk about why it's amazing and why I love it. And this month, we're taking a look at a Superman story that is very near and dear to my heart, very... Um, it means a lot to me, just as a book, as a story, as a representation of the character. And that is, of course, Mark Waite and Lanil Francis Hughes' Superman Birthright. We also have the latest weekly review on the newest episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, featuring my good brother Malcolm Russell Nelson. And of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Going to kick things off here with miscellaneous news, two pieces of video game news. First off, it looks like we are going to have to wait a little bit longer to get our uh, much-anticipated Gotham Knights game from, uh, I believe it's Warner Brothers WB Montreal. They announced uh, recently that Gotham Knights has been delayed to 2022, so it's been delayed till next year so that they can fine-tune and tweak it, and at this point, I think, honestly, everyone's okay with it. I haven't seen anybody who's, like, been really complaining about it being pushed back, and I think that has a lot to do with the cyberpunk effect, the idea that this highly anticipated game that everyone wanted to come out was released way earlier than it should have been it wasn't ready and got a lot of people on the uh on the side of waiting until a game is ready rather than rushing it out um if there has been backlash for delaying it i haven't seen it but my stance on it is pretty much how it's always been if you need time to make this as good a game as possible take that time do not i repeat do not rush this game out before it's ready so it sucks that we have to wait a little bit longer but totally okay with it if when it does get released it is a fully finished game and then speaking of fully finished games that don't necessarily need to be um expanded upon a report came out recently that naughty dog alongside sony is working on possibly a remake of the initial last of us game the last of us part one which i don't believe is even a decade old maybe i'm wrong maybe it's like i'd have to look that up but 
that game still runs incredibly well. I played it for the first time last year as the like complete uh, definitive edition, whatever they call it, on the PlayStation 4, and it ran super smooth. I don't see a reason to remake it. I guess if they want to make it a little bit closer to the gameplay from Part 2, and if they're looking to have it I guess, match up closer story-wise to that or to the upcoming uh, HBO series, but I don't see a need to do this. I don't know why they're doing this, and I don't really understand the thought process behind it, but whatever. Uh, Moving on to TV news. We're going to hopscotch here. Uh, Two pieces of TV news. First off, we got the very first full trailer for Netflix's Jupiter's Legacy, a new uh, Miller World property that's coming to Netflix. And honestly, I mean, I wasn't super impressed by the trailer. Uh, It looks like it had a TV budget and not in a good way. Um, I don't know. I've never... I've never been a huge fan of the Jupiter's Legacy comic. Um, Miller's stuff, honestly, for me, I think he's a great creator, but it's very hit and miss. I will love certain things he does, and then I just won't care at all about other things. So I'm hoping that the show itself will prove me wrong, but we'll just have to see. The one that I'm really excited about, though, is that for all you anime fans this past week, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 6 is finally getting its anime adaptation stone ocean is on its way they made this big announcement this past week which lit twitter at least on fire if not the entire internet i'm very excited about this um the only jojo's part that i actually haven't watched when it comes to uh the anime adaptation is part five uh so i'm waiting to catch up on that But overall, Stone Ocean is an integral part of the JoJo's legacy. I know a lot of people tend to skip it because, you know, oh, there's all this weird stuff involved and the ending is really strange. But I still think it's going to be great. I'm really excited to see Jolene. And I cannot wait to see how the uh, adaptation shakes up. Moving on to comics news now. Two pieces of comics news. First off... Unfortunately, we have to talk about the DC Round Robin Tournament. I told you I would keep you up to date on what is going on with that, even though I, again, I don't agree with how they're going about this. But uh, as I talked about last week, Round 2 is underway by the time you are listening to this, by the time that this episode drops, I believe the uh, this round of the voting will be over, but... As we saw going into uh, the round robin second round, which I I didn't mention it last week, but it really bothers me that they're calling it a round robin tournament because it's not a round robin tournament. I very minor thing, but it it, it bugs me. But. In the second round, we have four matchups here. First off, we have Green Lantern's Underworld on Fire going up against Zatanna and the King of Nightmares. As voting is standing right now as I'm recording this, we have over 13,000 votes and Zatanna is leading 60% to 40%. I, either way, either one of these books I am totally okay with. I prefer the Green Lantern book because I'm a Kyle Rayner mark, but... It is what it is, because we all know that this, whichever book, is basically going on to lose against this next matchup, which is Lobo and Animal Man going up against Robins. Robins, we knew, is going to be kind of an easy buy into the finals here. 
And as it currently stands, with over 11,000 votes cast, Robbins is, of course, leading the way with 67%, while Lobo Animal Man is at 33%. On the other side of the bracket, we have Jesse Quick up against Blue Beetle. Uh, with over a thousand or 11,000 votes cast, Blue Beetle is leading by 59% to Jesse Quick's 41%. And then in the final bit, the final matchup of round two, uh, it's very interesting. Over 12,000 votes cast, but a dead even 50-50 split between Suicide Squad 7 and Superman and Lois Ignition. Now, I have a feeling that Superman and Lois is going to eke by on this one, and then you know whichever um, whichever book you know, gets past or uh, makes it up to Robbins is going to fall to Robbins. And we're going to have a Batman and Superman final. We just, I'm going to call it now. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but that's just how I see it playing out. Um, I don't know. Like they announced the creative teams for the books of the second round. Um, I'm not going to go over them until, you know, we get to the finals just because it, Getting these creative teams is just going to set me up to wish that these books were made, which we all know is not going to happen. So either way, I I will keep you up to date on this. I'm frustrated with, again, the whole handling of this, but what can you do? On a more positive note, over on the Marvel side of things... We got a roadmap this past week for the Reign of X, the next uh, stage, the next phase in the Jonathan Hickman X-Men revolution. And we've got a roadmap for what is going to be happening with the X line as we go along, basically showing the new books that are going to be... Um, that are basically going to be uh, making their debut during this Reign of X phase. Uh, they do have in this first bracket, they have basically three uh, stages of this Reign of X phase. They have on sale now currently is Children of the Atom number one uh, by Vita Ayala and Bernard Chang. So that's currently going on. Uh, I believe coming up, either, I believe it might be next week, we have uh, Way of X number one written by Cy Spurrier with art by Bob Quinn. This is the Nightcrawler book that's going to be uh, essentially going through what I am assuming is his... Uh, his journey into making this whole uh, religion on Krakoa and the trials and tribulations that come with that. And then rounding out this first stage in May is going to be X-Core number one, written by Teeny Howard with art by Alberto Foch. I'm sorry. Um, but this is your first stage of Reign of X. Then in June of 2021... We have the Hellfire Gala. This is where our new X-Men team is going to be announced. This is where everything is going to basically come to a head and give us the clue into what is going on uh, going forward with the uh, with the X-Books. And then following the Hellfire Gala in uh, stage three of Reign of X, in July, we have X-Men getting a brand new number one already. Uh, looks like Jonathan Hickman is handing off the reins to uh, Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larraz. Pepe Larraz was the kind of breakout star of Hoxpox, and Jerry Duggan has been absolutely killing it on Marauders. Makes me a little worried on what's going to happen to the Marauders book, but we'll just have to see. I love Jerry Duggan as a, uh, as a writer, and I'm really excited. This is going to be 
assuming the uh, next X-Men team that we get. We also have two classified books coming out in both August and September, respectively. In August, we have a book that is currently classified and is written by Leah Williams with art by Valerio Shidi. And eagle-eyed viewers looking at the uh, the graphic have been able to somehow make out the word or the title as The Trial. We don't know if that's the official name of it, but that's definitely what it looks like to me. And this is, for me, what I'm expecting. And a lot of people have also uh, pointed out could be the trial of the Scarlet Witch. Uh, Wanda Maximoff has been labeled as the pretender ever since this uh, Jonathan Hickman era of uh, the Merry Mutants kicked off. So I am very excited to see what they bring to this. And then we have another classified book which is uh, going to be written by Jonathan Hickman. The artist has been redacted, and the title of the book we still don't know as well. So that's coming out in September. I'm sure once the Hellfire Gala gets underway, we're going to get uh, creative teams and titles for these books. But overall, I'm very excited. I have been really enjoying Hickman's X-Men era so far, so I can't wait to see what they uh, what they whip up for this Reign of X. And then finally... In film news, we have five pieces of film news. First off, for you Indiana Jones fans, Indiana Jones 5 has cast Phoebe Waller-Bridge as the female lead. Big fan of Waller-Bridge as an actress. She's phenomenal. Can't wait to see what she brings to Indiana Jones. We also got the announcement that Final Fantasy VII Advent Children Complete is getting a 4K remaster this summer. Those of you who loved and adored Final Fantasy VII Remake as I did found yourselves at least I found myself itching to watch Advent Children again, even though it's not the best uh, of the Final Fantasy VII family of titles, I guess you could say. The umbrella, the Final Fantasy VII universe. Um, but it's cool that we're getting a fully complete uh, 4K remaster of the uh, definitive version of the film. A lot of people uh, haven't been able to watch that film because of... It just not being available. So I'm excited to see uh, this whole remaster and get to watch it again. Uh, two big announcements. First off, Lucy Liu has been cast as Calypso in Shazam Fury of the Gods, joining Helen Mirren. That is a stacked villain lineup. Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu against Shazam. I think that's going to be fantastic. I can't wait to see this. And then Netflix this this week announced that they are developing a live-action Gundam film with Jordan Vogt Roberts at the helm. He's going to be directing and producing. And if that name sounds familiar, he's the man who directed and produced Kong Skull Island and is also directing the Metal Gear film with Oscar Isaac in the role of Snake. I'm very excited. This guy just keeps out... This guy is very busy. This guy is uh, making some big moves in the genre filmmaking space, so I'm excited to see what they have. And then finally, in our last piece of film news, Batman Long Halloween. We got that great trailer and the cast announcement last week. Well, this week they announced the release date of Part 1, which will be June 22nd. I'm assuming... That since they have this completed, they're going for a June release for part one and probably an October release of part two to tie in with Long Halloween. You know, that title, the idea that um, 
mo- that pretty much all of the killings happen on holidays because of the holiday killer spoilers, I guess. But um, I'm very interested to see what they do with this adaptation, how it's changed. They're definitely leaning into the uh, Man of Tomorrow slash uh, JSA World War Two art style so i'm assuming that maybe these are all connected who knows but i am very interested to see what they do with this adaptation and i can't wait for part one and part two but that's going to do it for this week and speaking of batman and dc comics we're going to turn our attention to the main event the entree if you will of this week's episode which is the latest geek explains spotlight on superman birthright As long as I've been reading comics, as long as I've been really um, a fan of comic books, of superheroes, of all that stuff, I have heard the phrase thrown around that Superman doesn't work, that Superman isn't relevant, that Superman um, can't work in the modern day, and... As much as it was kind of um, like uh, comic shop talk, as much as it was kind of, you know, friendly banter between uh, fellow fans of comics and other people in my life, it really kind of came to a head when Warner Brothers reportedly said that a Superman film wouldn't be successful because the character isn't relevant to modern audiences that the character doesn't work today and there is no better example no better shining beacon of how wrong that sentiment is the sentiment that Superman inherently doesn't work for modern storytelling than a little graphic novel known as Superman Birthright. Written by Mark Wade with art by Lanil Francis Yu, this book is the focus of our monthly Geek Explain Spotlight. And today I just kind of want to sit down and talk with you about why the book works, why it means so much to me as a comic book reader, as a Superman fan, and why it kind of flies in the face of this idea that Superman doesn't work. Now, when I get into the book itself, when I get into the idea of Birthright, I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, how I was introduced to the book, how I kind of came across it, and where I really kind of fell in love with this idea of a modern Superman story because I was introduced to Superman pretty early on in my life. Uh, Superman was the very first uh, superhero that I was ever introduced to and having this character through the animated series, through uh, cartoons like Justice League, like Legion of Superheroes, like all of these um, animated 
adaptations of the character always really struck me as uh, exciting and dynamic. And the stories that these were uh, mostly taking... um, uh, taking influence from were stories from the Silver Age. Now, the Silver Age is this bygone era where anything and everything could happen except for things that the Comics Code Authority deemed adult. But this uh, this time is usually characterized as wacky and spacefaring and cosmic and goofy. And this is really where the idea of the Big Blue Boy Scout comes from. This is where this idea of Superman is the goody two-shoes uh, originated and you know what really kind of helps to persevere the character to today and I was always a fan of this idea that Superman is this jolly fun guy who is um you know not never having to really deal with the normal day-to-day stuff sure he's got his Clark Kent person you know his Clark Kent persona his dual identity but that was never something that interested me when I was a kid but as I started to grow up as I started to uh, really get a sense of the character and really get a sense of the world around him and the you know the deeper meanings in comic books and the elevated storytelling that you could find in the medium I started to get bored with Superman I started to you know get this get into this phase that I think everyone gets into when they start to grow up having been a fan of Superman or a fan of comic books and they start to go through that like that edgy period where it's like oh I don't like you know Superman I'm a fan of the Punisher and you know I have made it very clear throughout my uh my illustrious career on this podcast that I think that there are people who went through that phase and never got out of it. But I thankfully was able to get out of it thanks to a recommendation. Um, you know, when I was, you know, mid early to mid-2000s trying to figure out, you know, myself as a child and trying to figure out, you know, what are my interests? What do I like? I kept, you know, I would always come back to comic books. I would always come back to superheroes. And... Something that I was really uh, into, you know, as I started to kind of grow into my adolescence was anime and manga. And that, you know, took up a lot of my time, took up a lot of my energy. And I was really invested in those kind of stories that felt more, (laughs) and this is funny, like thinking about it now, they felt more adult to me (laughs) because they dealt with people and teenagers and their problems and nobody understands them and adults don't get them. And I was, you know, I was looking for stories that I could relate to. I was looking for stories that I could uh, really enjoy on a level beyond what I perceived at the time as superficial. You know, I didn't come to these stories because they were bombastic and loud and bright. But I went to these stories for the, you know, the human experience, the human component of it. And... When I was introduced to a book called Superman Birthright, it was, uh, I want to say, God, it had to be um, probably around 2006 or 2007. Uh, right around the time that I'm heading into high school and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is what is a time in my life that I'm going to be, you know, 
trying to figure out who I am, who I'm going to be, who I want to be, feeling really alienated by the people around me. And I found myself in the library, uh, not the um, not the school library or anything, but it might have been a Barnes and Noble, to be honest with you. I just remember there being a lot of shelves, a lot of shelves, a lot of books. It was probably Barnes and Noble. I was near the uh, the Foothills Mall and frequented that area. But I found myself, you know, it was a Barnes and Noble. Now that I'm thinking about it because it was right next to the manga section. Yeah. So this was back when boys and girls, kids of all ages, uh, Barnes and Noble used to be like the spot for me when it came to, you know, going to places where I'd hang out with friends. And it was the place where I would, you know, pick up all the books that I would read. You know, I wasn't a slave to Amazon at that point. (laughs) The world hadn't really like gotten to that point. So when you wanted to find a book, you went to a bookstore. And I remember sitting in the manga section, looking through the books, and I turned around and I found myself face to face with comic books, graphic novels that were lining the shelves opposite from the manga at the time. And I kind of faced, and my eyes kind of darted down to this book called Superman Birthright. Um, I had always been a fan of the character. I still always enjoyed him. I was watching, you know, Justice League Unlimited, I believe, at this point. And I decided to pick it up, decided to grab it and just start reading it. I didn't have the money to buy it, but I started reading it and you know this book that came out in i believe 2003 originally is when it started uh releasing in single issues blew my mind blew me away you know this wasn't a story about you know superman going off and punching you know galactic threats this wasn't a story about superman you know, fighting against Mr. Mitzpiklik. You know, this wasn't a story about Superman palling around with the Justice League. This was about a guy named Clark Kent trying to find his place in the world and something that I was aspiring to, something that I was going through myself. And I kept thinking about this book. I kept thinking about, you know, what it meant to me. I kept thinking about, you know, the themes and the ideas and the characters. And I very quickly was committed to making sure that I had this book. And as I'm sitting here talking into this mic today, I am currently holding that copy of Superman Birthright. I have had this for years. This is one of my oldest comic book um, uh, possessions. You know, there was a, I remember distinctly, there's a rainstorm. And so there are pages in this book that are like crumpled up and like, there is some water damage in this. Um, but this is one of my prized possessions because it's a story that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, and today we're going to talk about it. But before we get into kind of the greater themes of it, before we get into kind of the, you know, the big questions and why this, you know, sets it apart, I want to talk about the plot. You know, I'm not going to go into um, as fine detail as I do with some of these Geek Explain spotlights because the uh, story as a whole and what it means to me for me is a little bit more important. But I really wanted to 
just kind of go through the story with you just, you know, in broad strokes. And the thing about the story that always kind of blows my mind, especially when you uh, find out how much it's influenced modern Superman storytelling when it comes to adaptations outside of the comics, it's wild. Like, this book has, you can almost draw a direct line, a bold line with a Sharpie marker from Superman birthright to a film like super like man of steel, you know, the, uh, the themes of identity, you know, where we come from, what's our place in the world are all there, but also like direct parallels. (laughs) Like this book starts out in Krypton. This took, this book starts out in the final days of Krypton. Uh, Jor-El and his wife, Lara, are trying to figure out what to do. The council has completely dismissed all of their claims that the planet is about to explode. And so they decide, as the planet begins to rumble, as people begin to die, that they have to send their only child in this experimental rocket that Jorel has done the research, done the simulations for, and they don't know if this rocket is going to make it. They set a chart for it to Earth, this far, far, far off planet. But all of the simulations that Jorel has run have ended in failure. So as they load their child into this rocket and send him off into space, they say to each other, we'll never know. We'll never know if he made it. And they die with the rest of their planet, not knowing if their son survives out in the vacuum of space. And as the rocket shoots through the cosmos, as the rocket travels through the uh, the void, the blackness of space... There's this amazing transition where the rocket is picking up steam, it's picking up speed, and then it transitions into a bullet. And at that very moment, Clark Kent, young man Clark Kent, is pushing, you know, blocking someone from being shot, and we are thrown immediately into an action sequence. And I love the storytelling here. You know, they are taking us from a very dramatic, very slow kind of... um, almost reserved moment where, you know, these two people are sending their son off and they are coming to terms with their death into this immediate action sequence where Clark is trying to save lives. And this is uh, Clark Kent in Africa, you know, trying to... He's basically, much like Henry Cavill's Superman in Man of Steel, he's traveling the world. Except in this adaptation this version of events he's traveling the world as a reporter as a journeyman journalist and he is going from place to place you know hopscotching all over the world trying to you know grow his journalistic uh skills and developing his journalistic ambitions and he finds himself in africa defending a man named kobe kobe asuru and this man is more or less a um an advocate for the oppressed people in that area and he is in you know he's constantly under fire he's constantly getting attacked he's constantly trying to be silenced uh by the oppressive government in the area and clark finds himself kind of vibing with this guy vibing with his cause this idea that people should be helping each other you know kobe's um 
group his followers at one point are just like you should like you should go like why are you helping us out everyone's calling him crazy the public you know doesn't believe in his fight they don't trust him because he's an outsider and he basically says like people should be helping each other out because they can and they immediately are like okay he's one of us he's he's cool he's cool and so we find out through this that Clark has been traveling around for about six or seven years, just traveling around the world, learning about himself, learning about, you know, what he can bring to the world. He's already got all these gifts. He can fly. He can, um, he's stronger than anything. He's durable. He can last. And he's also got this little tablet, uh, you know, bringing this story into the modern day, bringing this into, you know, modern constructs and modern technology, you know, he's got this shiny little tablet that went with him in the rocket that basically gives him a crash course on Krypton. It's history, it's culture, it's, um, it's prominent uh, leaders and figures. And so throughout his odyssey around the world, he's also learning about his people. He's learning about where he comes from. And he's in constant contact with his mom, Martha. And they're emailing each other back and forth. Um, let me see here. His, uh, his username is... Oh, I don't have it here. It's not at this part, but uh, they're basically emailing each other back and forth. He's constantly in contact with her, and he's talking about this idea of, like, you know, keeping his abilities a secret. Because every time that he makes connections with people, every time he makes friendships, he feels like there is a moment, you know, that he has to you know there's a natural disaster or something where he feels he has to step in and as soon as his abilities are revealed to these connections that he's made or these friends that he's made they run screaming from him and so he has begun to instead of involving himself in these disasters and these catastrophes and these you know events he is finding himself having to stay in the background and report on them keeping himself almost um at arm's length from helping people because he is afraid of how people react and so this is really kind of the first time that he's found himself you know in a long time you know actively involving himself in the dealings with this um with this uh, conflict going on in this place, you know there is there are two essentially like warring tribes, the Taraba and the Guri, and he is trying to use his journalistic capabilities to glean as much as he can from both sides, and he knows that uh, Kobe, who is kind of the um, the uh, leader of, I believe. Uh, uh, the Guri are he's kind of this figurehead who is planning a march to protest the uh, the prejudice and all of the just terrible living conditions that his people are dealing with and Clark knows after talking to the leader of the Taraba that he that they are essentially walking into a trap he, he is going to a He's going to do this big march. He is going to make this big speech. It's very Martin Luther King Jr. And Clark knows that this is a trap, but he tries to convince Kobe not to do it. He tries to convince Kobe not to go. And Kobe basically responds like, I 
I think that as long as there's one man who is there to talk about why things can be better than other people have the opportunity to listen. You know, all it takes is one person to inspire change. And so the march goes off without a hitch. They are starting the speech. And then Clark is uh, greeted by one of, I believe it's Kobe's daughter or his sister. It's his sister. And uh, she runs up to Clark and she's like, Hey, um, the Trabans are like burning our village to the ground during this uh, during this speech, and so Clark like immediately jumps into action. He flies away. He deals with the threats going on there, while Kobe is um, beset upon by these uh, by these MPs, this you know private security force that the leader of the opposing party is uh, is in charge of. Uh, there's this great homage to the Action Comics cover where you know Clark takes this green like Humvee and smashes it against the rocks because they're you know it's full of the people who are trying to uh, that are trying to uh, lay siege to this village. Meanwhile, in the chaos and the commotion at the uh, speech, Kobe is stabbed. Kobe is stabbed and he is murdered. And he is murdered in cold blood by this attendant who he already, you know, using his x-ray vision, knows is a uh, right-hand man to the guy uh, running the uh, Tarabans. And so Clark flies back. He, you know takes this guy, this servant who stabbed Kobe to death, and he's just, like, threatening him. He's like, who gave you this order? And the guy points to the leader of the Tarabans. And the media immediately, who was there, swarms him, you know, basically, like, you know, asks him immediately, like, hey, you know, what's your deal with this, blah, blah, blah. And we get this really heartbreaking moment where it had been previously established that Clark, through his uh, super senses, sees auras from all living creatures. And he has to watch as Kobe's aura fades to nothing. Kobe dies. And so through the... Um, through this uh, newspaper, through this newspaper called the Ghana Dispatch, um, Clark is able to use his journalism to lend credence to this idea that um, the politician was behind all of this and he's able to uh, influence him and force him to resign. And so Clark is at Clark is at uh, Kobe's grave afterwards, after the events of everything, and he's talking to Kobe's sister, and she asks him this question. She says, why couldn't you have stopped this? And he basically says, uh, I had to save the people he wanted saved. Uh, Kobe Asuru will be remembered as a great man with a simple legacy. He was who he was, and the world will be a better place for it. But in the back of his mind, he knows he could have done more. And this brings him back to Smallville. This brings him home. And he gets to reunite with Ma and Pa, who haven't seen him in years. And immediately, you know, we find that uh, Ma and Pa Kent are kind of different from your typical uh, depictions or typical adaptations of the characters. Ma is this uh, UFO believer, which, I mean, how could you not? after your son literally dropped from the sky but she's you know at the computer she's got these bumper stickers and these signs about ufos and like i believe and it's um 
it's kind of amazing because this version of Martha Kent uh, very much reminds me of my mama. And that was something I keyed into when I first read the book. And it's something that I, um, I feel even more so now. Um, Uh, the Ma, the Martha Kent depict here, depicted here is kind of like a, it's almost a one-to-one um, of my mama. And she was this incredible woman who believed in the impossible. And she famously, and I always remember this, um, in her uh, in her bedroom, she had this bumper sticker that said, uh, UFOs exist, or UFOs are real, the Air Force doesn't exist. And that tells you kind of right away her whole, uh, her whole deal. Um, she was this amazing woman who uh, loved to ask questions, and she loved to do research, and she had this love of film, she had this love of art. And she even was a uh, she was a fiction writer in her own right. She wrote dozens and dozens of stories, one of which dealt with and a spaceman coming into town and having to deal with prejudice, like an alien trying to live among us, dealing with the um, terrible treatment that he would receive when his secret was made known to the public in this small town and so when i see martha in this book i always see my mama and this is a very different uh, martha kent from what we're used to but she is like gung-ho for all of the alien stuff all of the ufo stuff and she is immediately like hey like what's going on when clark begins to tell her about all of the things that you know he's experienced the revelations he's come to you know there's a reference to the luthor boy that you know will come up later and he starts to think about you know you know clark basically says i want to i want to begin learning more i want to begin doing more and he basically says you know um where is it here uh you know it's still here the banner it's been on my mind it's colors basically pulling out instead of a uh, a blanket that he was wrapped in the cloth and the colors that he gets his superman suit from are from this flag that was attached to his his little baby spaceship and he says you know it's this meant a great deal to my forefathers while it's time it meant more to me you know he says uh, you've always taught me to do right by people that's the greatest gift you ever gave me but i feel like i'm working with my hands tied hiding all the time keeping myself secret keeping myself isolated he says something happened in africa something pretty awful but for a minute just one minute and for the first time i got i got called upon to give my all to have purpose like i was finally part of something rather than standing along on the sidelines like i was connected to the world and man i want to feel that way again that means no longer running from who i really am and then you know pa and we're going to get to this in a second he says you're clark kent you're our son and he says but i'm also someone else this time i it's time i started really finding out who he really is and i have a good idea where to start and so he begins uh, working with Martha on crafting this super suit. Meanwhile, we get this story of Pa Kent, of Jonathan Kent, who is this simple man who has 
you know, grown up uh, very different to Clark. He was someone who worked very hard to get his, you know, small slice of the world. And he has, you know, he served in the military and he raised a child who he was underprepared for, to say the least. He didn't know, you know, exactly how he would be, you know, raising and teaching this child who could possibly break the world if he wanted to, how to live and how to do right by other people. And we get this really kind of quiet and solemn moment where Jonathan's in Clark's old bedroom and he's like looking at, you know, the tallies on the wall of like Clark age four, Clark age six. He looks up to the ceiling where like, or this one, he's like Clark age four, where there's this like dent in the ceiling where Clark probably, you know, flew for the first time. And he is looking over, you know, all of these mementos of baby Clark, Clark growing up, and he kind of comes into this room where Clark and Martha are like using this, you know, space tablet alongside these drawings and designs to craft the super suit, getting really into this idea of like Clark being from space, him having these people who are, you know, from this other world and you see this kind of sadness in Jonathan Kent watching as the kid that he raised as his son is seemingly slipping away from him and so there's this moment where um you know Jonathan and Martha are having this conversation uh at night where you know Martha is saying like you were always good at keeping his feet on the ground talk to him maybe he can maybe he comes from the stars but he needs to be reminded he's just like you and me and John says well that's just it isn't it he's not and Martha it says you know Jonathan you can't really believe that and to say it what if he heard you and it pans out and Clark is sitting on the barn and he definitely heard what his boss said and so he's you know the next day he's kind of still working on the super suit with uh, with Martha and Pa is just very cold to Clark and he goes into the barn with the sledgehammer and he just starts wailing on this on this space pod unfortunately until it breaks through the support beams of the barn and the barn just collapses around him thankfully Clark's able to fly in there pick Pa up and you know whisk him away into the sky and the two of them have this very frank conversation where Clark finally gets to the heart of it you know Pa's like put me down and Clark's like not until we settle this until we hash this out out and you know we get in this conversation where pa is basically telling him like i am paying for the fact that you are not really my son you know i wanted to be your father and clark's like yeah like you are my father and jonathan says like no i tried to be your dad but my job is to give to my son you know, to pass along what I know and enough of who I am to matter. You know, he says, that, you know, that's the bond between a father and the son. And if ours was that strong, seven years apart wouldn't wipe it out. And they have this conversation where Clark reveals to him this idea of like, uh, he reveals to him like, yeah, I heard what you said where I'm not like you. And he brings up this great point where he says, um, uh, he says, uh, is that what you meant when you said I wasn't like you? You know, not like a man who left home when he was 18 to find his place in the world, who was strong enough to go figure out who he was rather than let others decide that for him. 
was that hard for you? And Jonathan says, yeah, very. And he says, then where do you think I got the courage to do the same thing? And this idea of, you know, not being as one-to-one similar to your father also, you know, struck me because, um, you know, my dad comes from a very similar background where he, you know, joined the military. He left home in his teens to figure out what he wanted to be. Um, he carved his own, you know, piece of the world out for himself. And, you know, through the years, you know, we, you know, we are very different people to say the least. Um, but there are things about him that I carry with me. And even though we are very different people, that doesn't change that fact. That doesn't change that even though we are um, we are different people, that doesn't make him any less my dad and that doesn't make me any less his son. And again, it was just, it's again, very, um, very close uh, pulling to my heartstrings and it's only, you know, become more relevant to me in the years that have come. And so as we kind of wrap up the Smallville section, you know, they're working through this, you know, quote unquote, Metropolis Clark identity. They figure out, you know, how to dress him in layers to hide his physique. They give him pause glasses to kind of dull the shine of his eyes. And we move on to Metropolis. And immediately, you know, Clark is overwhelmed by the city. It's so different. It's so you know, cynical and dark, full of smog. And he is just surrounded by people who don't believe in him and don't trust him. And he feels very alone and isolated. And even when he makes his big grand debut as Superman, you know, catching the helicopter, this beautiful two-page spread, saving both the lives of Lois and Jimmy, he is surprised when Lois seemingly isn't afraid of him. And that's immediately what endears him to her. And as he goes to, you know, disarm these attack helicopters, uh, he finds himself coming into contact and conflict with Lex, his old childhood friend, who, as we come to find out, uh, was very much on the cusp of finding out Clark's secret when they were kids. You know, Lex grew up in a very, you know, toxic home life and he was a genius even then and as we learn there was a couple instances where you know as a kid lex made this essentially like this alien detector and it worked it detected clark right away but because he didn't believe clark was an extraterrestrial he you know lashed out he's like it doesn't work this is a piece of junk it's worthless And it really goes to show in this book how much your upbringing influences you. It goes to show how much the the environment that you were brought up around really... um, really influences who you are and who you become as an adult. And so through a couple other instances, you know, Lex almost, you know, finds out Clark's secret until he finds this... um, he basically finds this piece of a uh, he he finds this piece of kryptonite essentially he comes into, into possession of this piece of kryptonite that um, immediately begins working its you know effects onto Clark and you know 
Lex takes it as like, oh, you're making fun of me. Like, you don't know what you're doing. And he uses this piece of kryptonite to power this generator, which uh, projects this essentially like a portal, a viewing window into Krypton. But the technology is um, super uh, rudimentary because... He is a child. He's a teenager at this point, and it explodes, causing his hair to burn off, and that's what severed their um, their relationship. And so as Clark begins to kind of settle into this life in Metropolis, we get to see something that I really vibed with and something that... Um, uh, something that has always stuck with me when it comes to Clark Kent, and that is Clark Kent alone. Clark Kent in isolation. Uh, when I moved out to Los Angeles, it was a very big change for me um, going from Tucson, Arizona, which by comparison is a very small town. Um, there's only one highway. It goes around the city or around the town, essentially, and... It's, by comparison to Los Angeles, it's essentially the difference between Smallville and Metropolis. And when I, you know, came out here, it's very easy to feel isolated, very easy to feel alone, and very easy to feel like this concept of the other. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, the concept of the other is this idea that in any uh, situation or any group of people, you always feel on the outside. And that is exactly what Clark goes through learning about himself and learning about Metropolis is that when he comes to, you know, start working at the Daily Planet, he, you know, is involved there. People ignore him. People are uh, wary of him. There's this scene where uh, Clark goes and, you know, there's this you know, get together with all the staff of the um, of the Daily Planet. Lois shows up late and she's like, I almost went to the wrong restaurant. Like, what happened? Why did we go? Why did we end up here? And someone basically says that, you know, we pull, we hoodwinked, you know, the new guy telling him that, you know, oh, we're going to call it a late night just to go somewhere else. And it's mean. It's mean. And it's something that I've experienced and it's never good. Everyone has at one point felt alone and isolated. And for the first time when I first read this, you know, as an adolescent, I felt like I related to Clark Kent. And, you know, what's worse about the scene is that it kind of pans back from across the street to this other restaurant. And you see that through his super hearing and his x-ray vision, Clark knows. Clark knows they all just ditched him. And he is sitting in the middle of this restaurant just kind of by himself. And as, you know, the as he begins to really pick up steam as Superman starts to get media attention, people are following him, really starting to, like, uh, become fans. He realizes and he starts to kind of lean towards, like, maybe I should just be Superman. Maybe I should just deal with that. Until he runs afoul of Lex, who begins this just gigantic and um, incredibly heavy uh, smear campaign. This story, if anything, really, um, really pushes forward the idea and the power of the media, the power of public perception. And as, you know, Luthor starts to begin uh, manipulating events to 
paint Superman in this, you know, really dark light and starts to um, posit this idea that, oh, he's an alien. And not just that, he's an advanced scout for this alien race that is, you know, working its way to... uh, to metropolis and to the world to take it over and through the events of the story uh clark is finally able to uh or superman rather is able to confront lex and lex reveals to him not only does he know where he comes from not only has he developed the technology that gives him a window to krypton he knows and is able to break the news to clark that he's the last krypton is gone krypton exploded and clark is the last of his people there's even a moment where he like after you know breaking this news to clark he snaps a photo of him he's like ah i just wanted to see your face and it's so dick of lex like it's such a dick move but it's pure lex luthor the you know the genius conniving evil person that he is and as uh as the two of them begin to argue and you know clark tells him like why are you doing this you know you're trying i want to help people you're a man of tomorrow here too like why are you doing this and lex basically says you know uh let's see here uh clark says you'd never hand these secrets to the government you wouldn't tip your hand and lex says point but i would bilk them for millions it wouldn't be the first time and clark says uh is that why you invented a hoax that's causing worldwide panic to line your pockets and lex says no to discredit and destroy you the money's just a perk you freak and it becomes this thing that i've always loved between lex and superman that the reason that lex hates superman and the reason that he continually focuses on trying to ruin superman is because he hates him he's not doing it for the fame he's not doing it for the glory he's not doing it for the potential to further the human race he just hates superman because superman embarrasses him you know he says uh understand i've spent my entire life searching for a civilization further up the evolutionary ladder than the knuckle draggers i was unfortunate enough to be born among well you finally showed up and given your first chance you deliberately humiliated me you looked at me like i look at the ants you don't get to do that period and it's this moment where he basically is able to uh manipulate the media he's able to manipulate the major newspapers and everything to force this perception that Clark is just the first of an invading force of Kryptonians. And indeed, the very next day, this giant structure emblazoned with the Superman crest, which in this story and in this universe is not the House of L. It's just the symbol for Krypton. And Lex is using it to cause panic and to rain down fire upon Metropolis. Uh, this, you know, Superman comes face to face with this giant mechanical spider, which I'm sure John Peters was none to none was no one was more excited about this than John Peters to to read. I'm sure, like he actually read it, but. Um, we find that a full-scale invasion of Metropolis is going on. Not only that, but Superman is suddenly incredibly weak. He doesn't understand why he's not uh, at full strength. He feels like his power is draining from him. And he is 
seen by the majority of people as the leader of this invasion. And so people are firing upon him. He's, you know, having to battle against this, you know, giant thing. But he's also dealing with cops shooting at him and people throwing things at him. And he is... As he's being shot, he's bleeding. And he comes to find out that he is being weakened in the same way that he did when he was under the influence of kryptonite. And as, you know, he he is able to escape, he's able to slip back into Clark Kent garb, he makes his way to the the Daily Planet where everyone is trying to find an angle on this and this imposing figure comes on the screen where he's just like, you know, I am Commander Vanguar of the planet Krypton. Effective immediately, you are under our rule basically and you know giving thanks to superman for being our you know our advanced scout and basically you know um more or less confirming the uh the belief of many people that superman is an enemy and as you know these overwhelming Krypton forces. Like for uh, for Lex saying that Krypton is no more, there's an awful lot of them here. Uh, Clark kind of escapes from the Daily Planet, basically having this last moment with um, with uh, with Lois. He he first has this like uh, uh, what I can only assume is like AOL instant messenger chat with uh, with his. Uh, with his ma, and here it is. His uh, his username is mild mannered, and his ma's is area fifty two, which I I I love. I love it. I love it. It's dumb, and I love it. Um, he's basically saying like, you know, um, I'm sick. Lex has found a way to broadcast the meteor radiation like a web across the city, and it's draining me. Um, I am like, I am I am backed into a corner, and Martha is immediately like, come home. Let the army deal with this. And he says, you know, they're not aliens. Like, this is Luthor's doing. I don't know how, but, like, he is masterminding this whole thing. And he says he's he's won. The city is his, and any second now he'll swoop in to rescue. He'll swoop into the rescue just to steal and seal the deal. And all I can do is watch. And his, his father, Jonathan Kent, gets on the line. He's like, this is your father. Come home. Like, we're you're done here like it didn't work out like we'd hoped there's no shame in that you've done a lot of good here but you have to pick your battles come home it's okay basically getting the confirmation from his father who he told like i need to figure out my place in the world saying it's okay to quit like you've you know you've done everything you can and that's all that can be asked of you come home and, you know, Clark types, you know, he writes out this letter to Perry offering his resignation. And as he's leaving, he runs into Lois and she says, you know, you're scared. We all are, but we have an obligation to the public. People are counting on us. And he says, I can't do anything for them. And she says, you spineless worm. And I, and I think I stood up for you. And he says, I know. And he leaves. And so Lois, you know, is just left to her own devices clark kind of flies up into the air after seeing you know this quote-unquote krypton or uh krypton invading force coming in and i love this moment where he's kind of in the sky watching everything go down and this vanguard this fake kryptonian commander says as of now we place our brand upon you know it it is the symbol by which krypton shall be forever remembered by the human race 
And Clark is up in the sky with his cape, with the seal of Krypton, with the seal and the symbol of Superman. And he drops his glasses, puts on his suit, and he says, like hell. And he flies in, decides that he is not going to quit, he is not going to give up, and he goes to save as many people as they can, even though they hate him, even though they are afraid of him, he doesn't care. He is going to save these people. And so he is bouncing around the city, he is helping people, he is saving people from the rubble, and he is analyzing, using his x-ray vision. He's able to see that most of this force, most of this invading kryptonite army, is a hologram projected out into the city by Luthor. 90% of it isn't real. And at one point, he crashes onto the roof of the Daily Planet, where he comes across Lois again. And he kind of reveals everything to her. And he says this, there's this great exchange. Let me find it. Um, So he basically says, um, Lexa isn't crazy enough to bankrupt himself building a Kryptonian army. And Lois says, not when he can gather phantom images from another world's past and broadcast them like holograms. So we... You know, she makes the connection that Lex is using this window into Krypton that he's able to generate and projecting those images onto into the city. And, you know, Clark says, or uh, Lois says, first, tell me more about this poison. What on earth could hurt you? And Clark doesn't know if he should share this with her. He says, nothing on earth. It's too dangerous a secret, Lois. I can't. I shouldn't. And Lois gives him the smile. And she says, explain, don't explain, do whatever you think is best. I trust you. And this is what he needs. This is the moment where the entire city is essentially against him, both the invading forces as well as the people. But one person, as he was told before, all it takes is one person to trust him, to inspire change. Not just in people as a whole, but in Clark Kent. And he's not only able to trust other people in this moment, he's able to trust himself. And he basically reveals he says you know luther calls it kryptonite it's a uh, meteor meteorite from my home world and it gives off a unique radiation that affects only me that's what's powering this entire operation a chunk of rock no bigger than a football and i can't get within a city block of it and immediately lois like jumps into action she says i'm going to go after it i'm going to disable it um you go do what you need to do because we you know we come to find out and it's explained to us that He is using the projections through the kryptonite, and the projections, the holograms, are essentially using the same radioactive uh, frequency as... as kryptonite which is what's weakening him and is and if lois is able to take the kryptonite out she's able to deactivate the machine it'll all come surging back to him so clark basically says okay you be safe and she says you too and they you know they part ways clark you know goes to fight some more of these you know drones as well as this vanguard person and he finds himself not only you know battling against these drones but also you know the people around him and he gets the absolute crap kicked out of him by this vanguard person because he's powered by this exosuit and superman is incredibly weak and he is faced down by this tank and there's this great um, exchange between Van Gar and Superman that only they can hear. So he basically says, actors, actors are paid fraud, Superman, which I 
was very offended by. Uh, Let this ring in your super ears. My men aren't doing this for the money. We're backing Luthor because he's right. You're the fraud and we're on to you. It's only a matter of time before you turn on anyone weaker than you. That's how it works. And Superman says, not always. And in one of my favorite moments of the story, Van Gar says, what, were you raised in a barn? And Superman rockets up, disables, you know, disables the movement of the tank, saves, you know, the bystanders, and gets in the way of this uh, of this tank. There's one person left as this tank is getting ready to fire. Superman runs to the tank, pulls off this giant S shield that was emblazoned onto the tank and uses it as a shield to save this child. And who is there to snap a picture of it? Jimmy freaking Olsen coming in clutch again, feeding into the power of the press, the power of media, the power of public perception. And he uploads the photo to Perry uploads the photo to the daily planet and it goes viral just all over the place. Superman protecting people against these Kryptonian invaders and immediately people start to uh, come around immediately. People are defending him again because they realize that Clark is fighting for them, that whatever is going on here, even if, you know, this invading force is real, Clark is on their side and they come to defend him. Meanwhile, Lois is able to successfully infiltrate Luthor's lab and is able to take the kryptonite rock out of its um, out of its machine, causing all of the uh, images to disappear. And more importantly, giving Clark his edge back. And so he wakes up as this you know Vanguard person is about to basically fire upon this crowd and. Clark straight up socks him on the jaw, lifts up, lifts up this tank, chucks it, destroys it, puts it right in into the uh, loading bay of the rest of Luthor's forces. Just as Luthor is uh, able to find Lois and go after her, Clark is able to uh, disable Vanguard, uh, basically revealing to him as. He finds out, he's like, wait, Luthor isn't coming. And he's like, no, Luthor only cares about himself. He always has. And Luthor and uh, Clark, with the rest of Metropolis rallying behind him, goes to save Lois. Lex throws Lois off of the top of Lex of LexCore Tower just as he reveals to her that, oh yeah, all of my people, or the most important person, uh, his armor... I rigged with a kryptonite bomb, hacking off a little piece of the kryptonite to explode when I say so. And at that moment, Vanguard's armor starts to light up, and Superman realizes I have to get this guy out of here. So he takes Vanguard up in the sky as Lois is falling. You know, she's falling, Superman's rising, trying to disable or trying to pull out this piece of kryptonite from Vanguard. And as Lois is about to hit the ground, the explosion goes off. The bomb happens. She is falling, 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 and doesn't hit the ground. Next page. The next page. The page turn reveal. Clark caught her. He lifts her up, and there's this high moment. And I love high moments. Like, the moment where uh, where Superman catches Lois, and they exchange this little, like, hey, like, that's, I will, I mark out for that so hard. I am an easy audience for that kind of thing, but 
man, is it good. So basically, um, they continue on, you know, uh, Clark shows up at Luthor, his, uh, his portal, his window into Krypton is starting to uh, become unstable because the uh, power source is flawed and has been removed. And so Lex is trying to communicate. He's developed the technology enough that this window he can communicate through. And he says, you know, you know, time is crucial. Like, I need you to send people here. I can, you know, and he is able to actually like interact with them, but he doesn't know the language. He doesn't know the Kryptonian language. Um, and Superman shows up and he's just like, you know, it's over. Luthor is being like corrupted and you see like the uh, radiation is starting to injure him and scar him. And they kind of, you know, they get into the scuffle. The kryptonite's, you know, blasting. So the two of them are more or less equally matched. Um, so Superman is like battling with Lex and, you know, Superman reveals that he was able to to uh, separate the bomb from Van Gar, and Van Gar's confession, you know, is going to be published. And we get to this moment where the screen is uh, going, and it's come to this scene, this familiar scene, where Clark like looks up and he sees two people who look strangely similar to him, and he hears through the uh, through the screen, he hears, "They wouldn't listen to me, Lara. It's hopeless." I. And she says, and this woman responds, I know, Jor-El, but keep faith in what we have and what we have accomplished. For it's Kal-El's only chance of survival. Our son, the last of the El family, the last son of Krypton. And this freezes Superman in his tracks. Clark looks up and he says, Kal-El, that's me. My name is Kal-El of Krypton. And Lex, who is basically being powered by the radiation in the room now, is, you know continues to attack Clark and the two of them are just battering each other back and forth as the opening scene from the story is playing out on this projection that is now enveloping the room and Superman finally knocks out Lex just as the rocket blasts off in the in the image in the projection and you know Lars says you know you gave Kal-El a, a father all a father can give his son. You gave him every chance. And Jor-El says, but will that be enough? We'll never know. And Clark is like reaching out to them. He's reaching out because he is hoping that somehow, some way, this window is two, is a two-way screen. This communication is a two-way street. And he says, no, no, listen. And as the you know radiation burns bright and burns out, he says, he's, he shouts at them, but he doesn't know if they'll ever hear him. The next day, uh, Luthor is apprehended, not by Superman. Luthor is apprehended because of an expose published by Clark Kent and Lois Lane. The two of them working together for front page news, indicting Luthor for his crimes, indicting him for everything that he's done to the city. And in the end, it's Clark Kent that puts Lex Luthor away, not Superman. Again, putting the final nail in the argument of the power of the media. And as, you know, Clark and Lois have this final exchange, you know, he says, um, uh, let's see here. I, I just, I love this final scene. They're kind of all celebrating and everything. Uh, Lois says, um, 
or Clark says, well, as long as I'm here to stay, maybe, maybe you and I could go to a, uh, I, I mean, if you're not seeing anyone. And she says, you did just hear me re- refer to you as a crybaby, right? Crybaby, right? And he's like, so noted. Would it help if I were able to leap tall buildings in a single bound? And she says, I, that, no. What are you implying? That I have some sort of lame crush on Superman? What are your sources? Did he say something? He says, what, to me? Come on. You ever see us together? And she says, so noted. Just be, and Clark says, just be careful. People still aren't sure what they think of him. And lo, and it's this wonderfully like tongue-in-cheek moment that I love for Superman stories. And it shows that they're able to go from very serious, very current, very relevant, and dark uh, subject matter into moments of levity like this. And Lois says, they'll come around. You watch what happens the next time someone tries to co-opt that symbol. People know now. It stands for courage. It stands for hope. It stands for Superman. And then the kicker, the gut punch of all gut punches, the ending that made me choke up and cry the first time I read it, and the ending that makes me emotional still to this day. We cut back to Krypton. We cut back to the end of the opening scene of this story. Krypton is crumbling to dust. The rocket has successfully been sent out into space, and Lara and Jor-El stand unsure and incredibly saddened by the fact that they'll never know if their son made it. And all of a sudden, something lights up next to them. There's this screen that doesn't seem to be coming from anything. There's this screen that they've never seen before that shouldn't be working because the planet is falling apart. And there's this image of this young man who looks just like the both of them. He's emblazoned in a blue suit with the shield of their people, the shield of Krypton, upon his chest. And he says, Mother, Father, I made it. And (sighs) content in their knowledge that All of this wasn't for nothing. Not only did their son survive, but he thrived. He grew up. He has a future. They are able to face their end content, knowing that the last son of Krypton lives. And what an ending, man. Like, seriously. Like, this story... And I know I said I wasn't going to go beat for beat through the plot, but, like, I couldn't help it. Um, it's incredible. It's an, it's absolutely incredible. It's an origin story, of course. You know, we hear a lot about, you know, Superman's origin stories... Origin stories being done to death. But this is incredible. Um, every character gets their time to shine. Clark Kent. The Kents. Lois is incredible. Lex is conniving and evil. Even Jimmy Olsen, he gets his time to shine. He gets... He is how the public turns back in favor of Superman. And I have to give all credit here to the incredible creative team, which I haven't spent enough time talking about, and I want to take this moment to talk about. Mark Wade and Linnell Francis Yu are the main creators on this book, and... At the back of my copy, I don't know if more uh, recent copies of the book are uh, contain this, but the back of my copy has the uh, original pitch from Mark Wade 
when he was pitching the story before it was known as Superman Birthright. Um, he is basically, he has this whole, like this whole thing that he wrote out and the main key, uh, through line, the theme of the story is who am I and why am I here? Which is, I think not just a relevant Superman story, but it's a, a relevant story for everyone. The human question is who am I and why am I here? And there is no easier, uh, uh, there's no easier theme to translate from the human experience to Superman than that, than that search for identity. And as he goes along talking about this, as he goes along talking about um, Superman, we come back to kind of a familiar thing, which is really funny. Um, this familiar thing that I'm going to just read verbatim here. Uh, and remember, this story came out in 2003, so they're probably working on this in 2001, 2002. And so Mark Wade writes, Not long ago, I heard a true story on NPR's This American Life about a man in Washington State who, for a while, regularly went about his daily life, shopping, movie-going, traveling, while wearing a Superman costume. I don't remember his last name, but his first name was Mark. That much is unfortunate, because now anyone from my high school graduating class who also heard the story and remembers only the guy's first name now thinks it's me. Nevertheless, it was a good, well-rounded story in the NPR fashion because it ran the gamut from mocking to poignant to philosophical. But one moment forced me to think about Superman in a way I never had before. The reporter, tagging along with Superman in public, noted that he tended to be most warmly accepted by people in their 30s and 40s. Or as the reporter put it, the people who grew up with Superman. He writes, oh my god. It's this light bulb moment, right? the same light bulb moment that I had. He says, yeah, we all know that kids can't find comics to buy anymore and we can't reach our audience and blah, blah, blah. Every prose in the bar after the convention conversation ever. But to hear it put like that, and know instantly that it was true was quite a wake-up call for me. There are entire generations to whom Superman is about as meaningful and significant as Woody Woodpecker or Marmaduke. And to be honest, I don't think it has nearly as much to do with comics availability as it does with the undeniable fact that the generation, that the next generation audience perceive the world around them as far more dangerous, far more unfair, and far more screwed up than we ever did. To them, and probably more accurately so than we'd like to believe, their world is one where capitalism always wins, where politicians always lie, where sports idiot, where sports idols take drugs and beat their wives, where white picket fences are suspect because they hide dark things. And to them, that's the world Superman represents and the status quo he defends. Now, does that not sound like today? Does that not sound like right now? It's crazy to me. Um, continuing on, he says, For some time now, and even more so in this post-9-11 world, I'd argue our audience gifts its excitement and its loyalty to heroes who aren't agents of the status quo. Young people want to read about action heroes who take action, who give voice to their anger at the world, and who act to change the landscape. Our audience is of a generation that doesn't want to identify with living symbols who exist to inspire. To them, the moral visionaries and inspirational figures of history, from Bobby Kennedy to Martin Luther King to Gandhi, got the same reward for their efforts. A bullet in their head. No, our audience wants to live vicariously through heroes who symbolize their rebellious spirit and understand their frustrations. And luckily for us, in 1938, Jerry Siegel and Joe, Su and Joe Schuster gave us a hero who did just that. 
I don't have to remind anyone reading this that Superman exploded in pop culture at a time when he was genuinely a champion of the weak and oppressed. When he fought against the system and was a little more Clint Eastwood than Christopher Christopher Reeve. I'm not for one second arguing that Superman should go back to punching out wife beaters or throwing enemy pilots to their doom, or otherwise so completely and thoroughly take the law into his own hands, and absolutely no one is is a bigger fan of the silver agey big blue boy scout Superman than I am. No one. Which is true. I say it all the time and I'll say it again here. Mark Waid is the biggest Superman fan in the world. If you think you're a bigger Superman fan than him, you're wrong. It's just facts. Uh, he writes, but I, gen- I really, genuinely do believe that he's increasingly marginalized in a world where kids have to go through metal detectors to get to school and that the next Superman renaissance will come when our audience once more feels it can connect with a hero who acts like defending Metropolis from Brainiac isn't the only way to make a difference. That's what Siegel and Schuster came to the table with and that's what we have to put forth here. The idea that Superman finds saving people as relevant as, you know, fighting to save the planet is something that's inherently at the core of the character and it's something that's always really spoken to me um i also want to give this quick uh mention to uh his blurb about the costume because we've heard oh so many times that his costume you know it doesn't work it worked in the 30s and 40s it doesn't work today the bright blue doesn't make sense i would i would like to posit exhibit a here uh mark wade writes when clark finally decides to stop avoiding his alien heritage and to instead embrace it the costume becomes his cultural touchstone a garment that honors krypton and serves as a constant reminder to superman of who he thinks he is its design is based on clark's vague memories of krypton lineal will redesign a krypton that isn't retro silver age but on which capes and boots were nonetheless the predominant fashion the suit itself is made from that in which jor-el and lara wrapped baby kal-el as they placed him in his rocket the flag of krypton a red yellow and blue banner centered around a design that looks for all the world like a stylized letter s not only is the costume a symbol of kal-el's tribal colors if you will it serves an even more important practical function one of the reasons ordinary people get chills when street clothes clark uses his powers uh openly is that it makes them retroactively paranoid they feel he's been hiding among them wonder if he's been spying on them which is to me um if i can just interlude real quick to me is a it's so relevant today with all the xenophobia going on with all these you know uh rhetorics on immigration and you know you can't trust your neighbor or the people around you are out to get you and you know it continues to talk about why superman is so relevant but uh anyway he continues uh he's been keeping those powers a secret that's a big secret how can they trust him now let alone let their guard down around him the costume by contrast you can see coming a mile away the bright colors everything it screams here i am look at me it's hard to accuse a man in a big red cape of sneaking around superman's costume is bright it's maskless and it's an open invitation for the people of metropolis to do what superman most needs them to do trust him the message is that as superman he has nothing to hide there you have it i don't 
I don't want to hear that argument from anyone else that that suit doesn't work today, that the bright red and blue doesn't make sense. There's your argument. But when it really comes down to it, the um, the intention behind the book is fleshed out and given life through the art. Lanil Francis Hugh is one of my favorite artists. He is incredible. And you can see through the years how his art has evolved. His art here is not the same as the art that he's currently or that he is currently done with Jonathan Hickman in the current X-Men run. Like his art evolves as the character evolves, as the American way revolves, as the idea of Superman evolves. And what I love so much about uh, Yu's work here, about his, you know, his revamp of everything is that while, yes, there are fantastical um, uh, influences, while there are big, bright blue men, you know, flying through the sky, where there's ideas of Krypton and space and people, you know, snapping photos to change the world, there's also a grittiness to it. There is a... Um, there's an honesty, there's a groundness, there's a grounding um, uh, influence to all of the art. You know, it's dynamic, it is uh, at times very fast and loose with how clean or gritty it wants to be, but it feels honest for all of the characters. The characterizations, the, um, the action, the designs, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Um, but overall, the story itself really speaks to Superman as an idea, and that the idea is we can all be Superman. That's the whole. That's the whole idea behind Superman having a uh, having his mild mannered reporter is that this idea that greatness can come from the uh, from the strangest places, and that it can come from the most unlikely of places. You know, I talked about. Um, early in the story where the people are, you know, telling the people following Kobe tell him that, you know, like, why are you following him? Like, you know, all these people say that he's crazy. All these people say that he is, you know, um, that he shouldn't be followed. You know, he's insane. And Clark says, and I'm going to quote here, I believe the tribe Ashanti have a saying, a charge to keep they have the human race to glorify all other neighbors to save, and raising human esteem high. And what that kind of boils down to, and uh, Kobe kind of more or less, you know, feeds you the meaning behind that saying is, he says, I simply want to make a difference. If I do, perhaps others will as well. Perhaps we'll all leave our mark. There's nothing more wonderful to hope for. I know. And he says, um, he basically says, I know my sister would sleep easier if I left it all behind. But if you wish to be a part of the human race, you have to get in the game. Otherwise, you're simply sitting in the bleachers, feeling like you don't fit in, like Clark was. We all have roles, and the world never changed for a man too timid to play his to the absolute limit. And the idea behind this story the idea behind Superman, the idea behind this person who has all the power in the world to do anything he wants, but chooses to help people, is the thing that I love about superheroes, the thing I love about comic books, the thing that I love about people. It's that um, at the end of the day, regardless of how terrible things can get, and things do get very terrible all the time, 
every day. It sucks. Um, we as a people, we as the human race, have a unique opportunity as a people to uh, to be able to help those around us, to be able to help the people who need help, regardless if it serves us or not. If we have gifts, we should share them with the world. It's the whole, you know, um, with great power comes great responsibility thing, which, as we've come to find out over the past year, is uh, attributed to Superman just as much as it is for Spider-Man. But the idea that if you help people, other people may be inspired to help as well. The idea that you should help people, whether it helps you or not, because it's the right thing to do. If that idea isn't relevant, if that idea isn't modern, if that idea, you know, isn't what has represented the character from his birth in 1938 to today, if Superman isn't relevant then I don't know what is it is now time for the weekly review this is the segment of our show where I review something weekly and today in this episode we're reviewing episode number four of Falcon and the Winter Soldier entitled the whole world is watching and I am of course joined by the man who would help me get through my programming Malcolm Russell Nelson Malcolm <laughs> what did you think of this episode man uh, I really liked it um I I really liked this a lot yeah let's let's do Dude, this How, crazy, what about you crazy crazy episode man I, yeah it it's the end of the second act and yeah. it makes sense that it has the gravity of the end of a second act it felt very much like the end of a second act of a movie for sure yeah and everything like the word of the day kids is escalation like this episode <laughs> was all about escalating yes. pretty much every situation that was going on in the past three episodes yes and what i love about um about this episode just going straight off the bat is the almost it feels like the writers looked at episode three while they were making it and they're like hey we're gonna get people to really like zemo and then the next episode we are going to turn on you so quickly that you yeah. will not be able to recover for what zemo is going to do <laughs> yeah i like that immediately he uh he became the zemo that we know from the comics uh, yep. which is a shout out to your episode from last week I listened to your episode last week which is a nice history of a uh, baron helmet zemo and Heinrich zemo as well but yeah that yeah. was that was a lot <laughs> it is, it is, yeah it's a lot but he very easily slipped into the character of zemo that we know from the comics Absolutely. the, the bit with him and the candy zemo. is so this is a thunderbolt oh zemo. my god the, the bit with him and the candy hit. and the kids and be like hey those two guys over there they're they're bad guys don't trust them you know? yeah. <laughs> like danya stays between us right a, like it, <sighs> he's manipulative he's he, i mean he's he's loki without being a god you know what yeah. I mean? Like, this is how I want my Loki to be played out. It's just like really manipulative. You system. don't know where he is. Yeah. He works the system. I love it. And I love the the line that he gives to them where he's just like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to my leverage as long as I need it. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. uh, masterclass, but the episode I opens love it. up 
with a fantastic scene. It's a flashback mm-hmm. to six years ago. We're in Wakanda and the Dora Milaje who made her appearance at the end of last episode, Io. Io. Working with Bucky through his Winter Soldier programming. Yeah. Oof. Big oof yeah. for me. Um, I loved it. it watching incredible. Sebastian Stan has been great this entire series. Yes. Um, we've always known he was a pretty good actor, man. But he, the that moment that like he he's hearing the command words and he's like losing. He's like, I, it's not going to work. Like, and he's freaking out and then rolls a tear as the last word comes. And then the, you can see the recognition of like, wait, I'm OK. I'm still me. And it was that last flash, like all of the flashes of him doing his Winter Soldier work. And the last flash is the moment where Steve gets through to him at the end of Mm -hmm. the Winter Soldier. Mm -hmm. Which is incredible. I I teared up, man. Like a genius choice, like an absolutely genius choice. And I know, too, at the beginning of that, to her credit, she's just like, oh, don't worry. Like, if you go crazy, I'm like, I'll make sure you won't hurt anybody. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But her and, just being like, "You are free," and he's just like crying, and then and then crying, can laugh he's happy, like, like he's so happy. Oh. It's the first time you get to see that character actually happy in the entirety of the MCU, which is really nice. <laughs> yeah, like, and and it makes me feel even worse, like retroactively yeah. that scene from Infinity War where they force him back into war. Like, uh-huh. he was happy, man. He was happy just uh-huh. living his one armed life. Yeah. Oh. But yeah, so we, the, get, we get a lot of one arm in this one. Oh boy, do we? Um, <laughs> I was I mean, not go, expecting that. Going through this episode, them going to the refugee camp, um, just the the immediate distrust every time like Sam walks into a room, everyone just like gets out and locks the door. He's just like, yep. okay, this is I love this it. This is awful. They are in on this. I love There's it. There's no way they're not in yeah. on this. <laughs> and then, yeah, Zemo gets the info. And then yeah, they're poor heading... Buck. He's having a real hard time. Dude, like, oh, he's he's trying so hard. He is trying so hard, man. But, like, so they get some he's info trying. that Zemo is going to hold on to. Um, I really also liked that conversation in... Um, at the beginning between Zemo, Bucky and uh, Sam, where they're talking yeah. about like, yeah, you know, super soldiers are, are a bad, bad deal. Like Zemo's basically yeah. talking about like, yeah, super soldiers are one step away from supremacism. Like, I don't know yeah. what else to tell you. And they're very they, interesting conversation. Yes. And they give the, you know, Sam gives the line like, but that didn't happen to Steve. And Zemo's like, yeah, well, there's only one Steve, isn't there? Yeah. And Oh man, just layers upon layers with this man. The dialogue again. Another, I, I've been talking every episode about how like each each episode is this is a lesson that Sam has to learn yep. in his journey to become Captain America, and this one kind of has two. It's that one, and then another one we'll touch on later <laughs> for sure. And then like when they're heading out, and we finally after an entire episode apart. Walker and Hoskins, Captain America and Battlestar finally catch up to our little dynamic trio. And I love the fact that um, that Walker just runs around without his helmet as Cap. He's just like, hey, guys, I'm here. Hello. Yeah. He's such a putz. (laughs) Such a putz, man. But to be honest, I I kind of really feel for the guy. I do too. It's awful. And this episode makes you feel for him before he like absolutely loses it. It's like, oh, it is. Um, 
it's it's frustrating just because like you know that he could be a good guy and it's just the pressure is getting to him it's getting him bad hard yeah and so they basically they get the info they're like okay we're gonna team up for this we're gonna find out okay this is what we're doing you know they're holding a memorial for mama donia and Mm -hmm. sam is gonna go in and try to talk to her because sam is all of a sudden starting to get like in this mindset of like maybe she's right i love this i love that that's the best scene in the entire show so it was the carly and it reminded me of those scenes between steve and sam where they would just be kind of yes yes and it yes genuinely feels and he even talks about that too a little bit yeah like how in that background he's from counseling background this would make sense for him to go talk to her yeah and it it's such a like it's such a frank and honest and like casual scene where like, he's just like, yeah, you're, you're killing people. And she's like, you know, I, you know, they are in my way and I would kill them again if I needed to. He's like, Ooh boy. And she's like, no, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. You, you tricked me into sounding like that. He's like, sounding like what? Like, I don't, what do you mean? Yeah. It felt very natural and very human, which I really dig for the, yes. the shows just doing in general very human and like meanwhile like with walker just like pacing back and forth and our boy john boy walker is just like oh like, he's oh. itching for a fight he's itching so much because this is the closest he's gotten since the fight on top of the trucks and he is like bucky can tell i love how like subtly like the framing the blocking of this too like bucky is legit standing in the doorway because he knows that walker's a little trigger happy i love it and so like they have this moment where like walker's and walker gets to him a little bit (laughs) oh boy does he man that conversation that back and forth where it's because we had talked about before where um i think i believe it was at last week at the or at the beginning where we were talking about like maybe he's taken something already but like this episode we come to find out like yeah. he hasn't it's just like he's a little he's a little he had up. not uh-huh and he like they they talk about like he has a conversation with hoskins after everything kind of goes sideways um Zemo ends up like breaking free of the handcuffs. He chases Carly down. He shoots her and he like destroys almost all of the serum except for one vial. And then the next scene is Johnny and uh, Lamar just like in this looks like a train station or some something. And they're just yeah. have, they're just two bros, two guys having a conversation. <laughs> six, feet like, apart. six feet apart. Six feet apart. And they have like the the girl come up to him and like ask for his autograph and like they have like a genuine rapport, which I love. Yeah, their chemistry. I, I love that they are friends. Like you buy their friendship. Yeah, and you buy the Lamar is actually a really good guy. He like is. I I love that. I think Lamar because you know I mean there's there's a bit earlier where Lamar you know tells John like hey listen if Sam thinks that he can go talk to her like and talk her down maybe that's worth it you yeah. know like Lamar's a really good dude and he's <laughs> been John's conscience like throughout these last few episodes yeah. like anytime that John kind of exactly. gets like ah Lamar's always like yo dude chill like yeah exactly just let's talk about this which exactly, makes what happens yeah. later all the more tragic and 
they have have that conversation where it's like if you had the chance to take the serum would you and like without like going out and saying it this is his you know veiled attempt at like talk me out of this yeah like talk me out of this bad decision i'm about to make and lamar just he's like yeah dude hell yeah i'd I'd take that serum man which is not what john needed to hear no no especially after they go to uh get zemo and (laughs) so does the dora milaje and they Uh, so good they they beat the crap out of them like oh my god it was incredible the move where she throws the spear through the handle through the handle and it locks it into the table and he can't like get his arm out even like yeah mint like so awesome i i was blown away by that so awesome and then like yeah give him like they give him this moment after they leave after zemo like you know as as they put it el chapo's it and like escapes through the bathroom and um you know he gets out lamar is just kind of like because he knows this is gonna mess him up so lamar's just (laughs) like hey dude are you okay and he does his greatest charlie brown oh my god he's like they weren't even super soldiers (laughs) he's so sad he's like why why so bad at this because you know he's also mad that they not only weren't they super soldiers but they were women and they were black women oh yeah (laughs) you know he's mad about all of that absolutely (laughs) like it is no doubt in my mind that all of those factors went into this and he's just oh yeah man my this he was humbled and it was incredible it was incredible i just oh i loved every every minute of that and yeah that was awesome if anything this episode really and i'm i'm sure that they didn't like they didn't intend this or anything but i got very much those like i am shipping bucky and io like after this episode i get that the dynamic and the rapport that they had like yeah they're close i i really like that they established just in this one episode how close they are i i really like that i think that's a really smart choice because she's been there since wakanda was introduced in the mcu Mm -hmm. and like she's never gotten the kind of um the kind spotlight. Of spotlight that Okoye yeah. gets and exactly I'm glad that they're like they're doing that for her because she's awesome and she's yeah. like yeah she's awesome and terrifying also absolutely uh terrifying gonna throw this out there super hot <laughs> <laughs> absolutely no she's lie. got that confidence swagger when she walks away from bucky like in the alley that confidence swagger that she walks with before the title card i was stunned i was like oh my god like, yeah <laughs> bucky is like two steps away from being like step on my throat please just like just... oh he he wants her to punch him so bad <laughs> he wants it but so we get like i said the, this little conversation between john and lamar john has been humbled and he's like in between we don't see it we don't see how he does it but he takes the serum and mm-hmm. so basically uh we get this killer scene too where uh where carly calls sarah and yeah. I'm kind of sad that they've more or less relegated Sarah to a background role. I it's my one big complaint about the show. Yeah, I hate like it. I get it. <laughs> I like with it. the pacing that we're going through, we don't have time to cut. Makes back sense the same with Sarah, 
but I really yeah. like Sarah as a character and I wish she would get more. Yes. Because you know yes. that this, this feels the most like a like a movie thing. Yes. Like that that feels very much like a plot line that would be given this amount of time with a movie. So you expect like, oh, with the six hour show, she would be given more time and she hasn't been. Yeah. And that really sucks. And you know that this whole like, okay, go somewhere safe. I'll let you know when it's done is like we're never gonna like get back to her until like the end of the series. No, which sucks, yeah. you know. But it was a cool moment for Carly, who is like just <laughs> descending into full blown terror. Yes, yes. And the, I'm, I'm thinking if I need to kill your brother, like, <laughs> yeah, man, like that was like, oh, just yeah. insane, like main villain energy, real villain energy, yeah. And the moment where she like she talks to Sam afterwards, where Sam is just like he's pissed, like he rolls up and there's like Carly. Oh, and I love that. Up. It's the specific yell of Carly that yeah. he does is a very specific like angry black guy pissed yell. <laughs> Carly, <laughs> like it's the dad who's had enough of his kids' shit. Yes. <laughs> and she I like she it. she sees him and she's just like, hey, like I noticed you didn't come alone. And he's like, we are not having this conversation. Like yeah. you threaten my sister. <laughs> Sister. you threaten my family yeah. yeah and she like i mean she does that little like backtrack like i would never hurt them i just want to learn more about you i'm like yeah i don't know if i buy that or not yeah that seems like crap yeah, yeah. but i do really like the brief sequence that they get and that we get uh more sharon as well sam has yeah I was, I was she's eye in the sky which school, i like but also yeah. like keeps her just bubbling in the background for uh-huh. she mentions that the power broker is really pissed about everything going on. And then yeah. we also get the power broker messaging Carly again, yes. being like, I'm coming for you. I want my stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, Oh man, like it is so cool. Just watching at all of these different, like running plot lines going through this. Yeah. And yeah. when they get to the moment where they realize like, Oh, like either, uh, either John and Lamar have found the flag smashers or the flag smashers have found them. Uh-huh. And that like brief little scuffle where like Bucky like leaps down from the balcony and like Carly straight up like tapping. And Carly just charges them so tight. So cool. So cool. Yeah. They're able to get away. We see Bucky doing his super soldier run and Carly <laughs> hot on his trail. And, yeah. Uh, John and Lamar get ambushed. Like this was... Mm-hmm very tense and i yeah loved it the two of them just going into this building like this abandoned hospital it looks like it felt like a more intense version of the apropos the the scene in first avenger on the yes, train absolutely. Uh, where where steve and bucky are the two like on the train going through the train car like it yeah. felt like a more tense version of that which they end in the same way absolutely <laughs> so they do sense. except it's just a touch more final yeah um and you know lamar gets jumped while john is like left alone to fight some people and there is a moment when you know sam and bucky finally you know catch up to them this guy's like hitting him with a pipe and john catches the pipe and then bends it around his arm and i'm like oh yeah oh yeah no this is bad i Mm -hmm. don't like this and that's when sam rolls up and sam sees it and is like oh shit because <laughs> yeah. he knows he knows it's going down yeah. now and so 
it yeah. culminates in this like really great sequence with uh Bucky, Sam, Cap, and Battlestar like just duking it out, outnumbered by all of these flag smashers. Mm-hmm. And Carly finally shows up and she's straight up just boom punches lamar straight in the chest sends him flying backwards uh, ricochets off of the stone pillar he's murked uh-huh. like he's done absolutely dead like and i was so the sad. crack yeah i was sad too like you hear his skull crack against the pillar and like even though for a lot of time there is a whole lot of you know in uh in the MCU, oh. we get a whole lot of like, oh, there's no, you know, finality. There's no real, no yeah. one ever dies and stuff like nope. that. Nope, this, this time it's final. <laughs> there was a brief moment, yeah, where I was like, no, no, they're not. No. Nope. Oh, they did God. it. And just like his body just laying there. And John mm-hmm. like goes up. And even like the other Flag Smashers are like, oh, no. Yeah, I like that what everyone like takes off immediately sam and bucky go after them yeah like don't stop to do anything carly takes off and then that's when john realizes like oh everyone's taken off carly took off i need to go after them (laughs) and just leaps through the window does the cap land with the shield but it's in a really intense like terrifying like look on his face where he looks like a monster (laughs) and he chases down this guy who earlier in the episode gives this whole like speech about how he was a fan of captain america yeah um like over the past week just like to give you context like we have um we have one of the uh one of the actors from uh from the series he's one of the flag smashers who gave a very personal story yes through interviews and on twitter about like what captain america means to him yeah desmond claim right yes and it this very much felt like in that same vein like these. yes it felt very much like that story which is really interesting yeah which i loved i i did that stuff and it i thought it was really cool of course it like i relate to that i'm sure you do as well like getting those moments of people being like yeah i was a fan of cap and like they suck and like this is just like this is how we're dealing with it and he talks about almost in a way of like this is like the flag smashers are almost like a what would cap do kind of situation yeah and i really dig that layer to them because i will say like i feel like at times that the characterization of the flag smashers we don't get enough time with we don't get enough time with them to make them to kind of get us on their side to make them people no right i agree and so like it's moments like this that really drive that home for me and make what happens to this guy at the end of this episode even yeah heartbreaking yes you know walker is chasing this guy down like johnny walker is a no like no like take prisoners attitude at this point he's like i'm going to kill you if i catch up to you and yeah the guy like whips like a like a cement thing onto him and he just breaks him in half yeah (laughs) like a classic shield move but like also it's terrifying but it's terrifying he feels like the winter soldier from yes like that original winter soldier movie yes like i have always looked at is like he's like the terminator except yes exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) and like he finally like he is kicking the shit out of this guy 
kicks him over onto these steps of the statue and he even like he tries to get up and john like kicks him back down uh-huh just like beating the hell out of him and then finally raises the shield up and there is this slow-mo moment where everyone catches up and you know the again calling back to the uh the title of the episode the world is watching everyone's the whole world is watching yeah and he just brutally in the same way calling back again to civil war with cap doing the move to iron man Mm -hmm. just kills this guy with the shield and i Mm -hmm. distinctly was just like oh my god like the (laughs) the pacing the music like yeah that hit yeah very hard yeah yeah just it's bad yeah man and then he like stands <laughs> up bad. you could see there's no remorse there's no remorse whatsoever everyone in the crowd is just filming on their phone sam and bucky are there and just like oh my god <laughs> like, yeah we see carly in the crowd oh too. no carly's like, in the watching. crowd and she's horrified like, and the ultimate like, <laughs> mic drop moment is he pulls the shield out puts it back on his arm and tightens the straps uh-huh. and he just like looks around and the blood's dripping from the shield yeah you get the hero shot of captain america standing in the circle with his shield and it's just the bottom half of it is just bloody and dripping <laughs> incredible like yeah good ending what an ending for this episode like yeah man and we only have two more of these two more like mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen here. Like, cause we've got, cause we talked about, I think uh, either last week or the week before that um, we thought for sure that Walker was going to kill Carly. That yeah. He was going to like, we were going to get really invested in Carly's story and then Walker was going to kill her. Yep. I really thought that's what was going to happen here, especially after she killed Lamar. I exactly. really thought that's what was going to happen here. Now I don't think so anymore. I think I that Carly's so. going to be okay, but Sam's probably going to wind up saving Carly which is nice agreed so what did you is there anything that like we did we haven't mentioned yet that really stuck out to you um what do you think about the episode as a whole what do you have what do you think is going to happen next episode uh like like i said i think this was a really strong like end of the second act um and now the the last act of traditionally the last act of a marvel movie is the very action heavy one so i feel like we're done with most of the emotional stuff other than you know sam eventually taking up the shield um which i i imagine episode five like that's the end of episode five is sam takes up the shield becomes captain america and then episode six he has captain america and he's got to handle everything oh yeah which i'm real excited that means i'm a week away from seeing this like yeah man we've been we've been waiting for it for we've been long. waiting a long time for this so what um, is it, 2019 now yeah like yeah this has been a this has been a promise for a while yeah yeah i need it <laughs> i am very interested what do you think is going to happen to uh to bucky at the end of this he got referred to as the white wolf again which i loved yeah, yeah. um what do you think is going to go down with him that's the thing I honestly don't know. I imagine he, I wouldn't be surprised if he like sticks around and, you know, keeps helping out Sam and stuff like they become Captain America and for lack of a better term, Bucky. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I hope that Zemo gets captured and goes back to Wakanda. But the other side, I also don't want that to happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I have, don't know. We have that. Um, 
I don't know if it was just like intended to be just like a screen test or whatever, but we still have that footage of him with the beard. I would say him with the beard pulling on the mask. Yeah. Like we haven't seen that. And again, maybe that was just for a costume test or whatever, but I, I would be super down if he ends up like, if that ends up being like one of the last things from the season and he becomes the main villain of season two, if we get a season two, that would be great. I do. Do you think we're gonna get a season two? I don't think we're gonna get a season two of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I could easily see us getting a season two of <laughs> America and the White Wolf. See, that's that's the thing. Yeah, I I just imagine season two is just called like Sam Wilson, Captain America, or something. You know, that too. I'd be super down. <laughs> it's it's interesting. Captain America and the Mighty Avengers. <laughs> oh yeah, give it to me with Luke Cage, Monica Rambo. <laughs> Blue Marvel. Yeah. Throw Blade in there. There you go. Absolutely. You got the whole thing. Man. Like, let's do it. And let's then, do it. And then if we want to go real, you know, comics accurate, we'll have Superior Spider-Man show up. We won't we won't explain it. No idea why mm. Superior Spider-Man is here. Mm. Be there. Mm. And that's just what it yeah. is. Yeah. And that's that's what two. I want. That's what I want. <laughs> Hell yeah. But yeah, man. This, Hell yeah. this episode is fantastic. I they're going from strength yeah. to strength with this show. And I know we've already said that, but it's so true. Yeah. Like, it's crazy how good it's funny because I feel like a lot of people don't like this. I all I see on like on really online and like with, you know, like reviewers and stuff is like, yeah, I just keep seeing like a lot of reviewers and stuff like not really into it. I'm so surprised because I think it yeah. works perfectly. Like, you know, there's some things I would definitely change about this. but I love this. Like, I think it's sure. great. Yeah, and I knew, you know, we've we've said it before, like we're easy marks for this because this is exactly our we Yeah, have. for sure. But like even This so, is our guys, yeah. Like we can suss out when something isn't good. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've, yes. we've been watching it for long enough and have enough of a critical eye that we can do that. But Yes. This is good. This like is this is actually good. good. Yeah. Yes. There there are definitely things that could be changed and by the end of the series we may have to do like a wrap-up episode or something to to talk about things that should be maybe played differently or what but yeah uh, there's definitely things that could be changed but i think they crushed it yeah i i agree and we will absolutely do like a full-on wrap-up of the series but yeah it is kind of crazy to me like that anyone could see this is not great um yeah it's wild i can understand like you know seeing some certain things that you would change like we've both talked about it before like yeah there are absolutely things like i wish we had more sarah stuff but like yeah exactly this is so far and above the quality of what i think anybody expected from these disney plus shows exactly and coupling that with how amazing wandavision was right they are killing it like you you obviously saw the uh the loki trailer right yes yes looks interesting and it looks looks really interesting that's the one i was least excited about and exactly looks really interesting and wildly different from anything else and i'm very into that and i love that they're making all of the disney plus shows feel distinct from each other yeah this is very different from wandavision and both of those are going to be very different from loki yes it's what the movies did really well like in phase one and not so much in phase two or 
three. <laughs> I will argue that Phase Two had some movies that were definitely different. Ant Man, Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, you're, you're right. You're right. You're right. Definitely had films. That's, you're right. But I absolutely agree with you that as Phase Three and now you know getting ready for full on films for Phase Four kind of came along. Yeah. It does feel very much like oh, this is in the same universe, so it has to feel like the same movie yeah which is why i enjoy what they've been doing with the show so far and i think they're same doing they're doing the best that they can to differentiate it so i yeah. i am digging the show i'm digging everything that we're getting from it and i cannot wait to see next week's episode yeah um it's gonna be wild man uh did you hear the um the showrunner talked about how there is something in episode five that is going to make people cry and interesting yeah he said something about like there is a character that shows up in episode five people will cry interesting i want to i want to play i want to play this with you who do you think it's going to be put down a wild prediction who do you think character that is up in episode five that makes people cry i don't I don't want to say it, but it, it might be. I think I might cry saying it. I think it's Chad. It's Chadwick. I could see that. I could absolutely see that. Um, yeah, especially with because we know that you know he he passed last year, and yeah, most of principal photography had finished up before that yeah. before he passed. And it is yeah. absolutely possible, especially with the I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, I that's the thing. I wouldn't be surprised if it was him. Yeah. And I, that would that would maybe break me. <laughs> agreed. I think it would break a lot of people. Like God. I will Jesus. I will I will that is that is a oh my god. That is a great prediction. That's super good. I'm really scared now. I didn't think yeah. about this. Oh no. I will I will counter it with I I think that they're gonna there's a possibility that they go for the easy answer, that they go for Steve Rogers, whether it's you know a flashback or we get yeah. like, old man Steve. Yeah, like, I hope it's old him. man Steve. That'd be amazing. Yeah, I would love to see President Joe Biden show up again in the MCU. <laughs> I think it would be um, Wouldn't that be a blip if it actually was him? It, it actually was it, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, who is actually just like, because, and I said this when Endgame came out. It is, yeah. I was gonna say, I remember you. We talked about this. Yeah. How much he looks like him as old he looks Nancy. exactly like Joe Biden. It's it amazing, wild. But <laughs> I don't know, man. Like I think that either one of those will be a hell of a gut punch. So yeah. Um, Tune in next week to listen to us cry, I guess. Yeah, him. that's the thing. Whoever if, shows up. If it's Chadwick, I'm just going to be a blubbering mess the entire episode. Just know that. <laughs> yeah, because we, you know, for context, we record these on the day that the episode drops. So we record yeah. these every Friday. And it is going to be some real feels next week. So get ready yeah. for that. That might be uh, the one that I don't watch twice before we record. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know if I can go through that twice. <laughs> so either way, whoever shows up, we're going to talk about it next week. Tune in for that. But for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh. 
Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we've got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And I think to the surprise of no one for me... My pick of the week was Far Sector number 11, written by N.K. Jemison with art by Jamal Campbell. It is great to pick this book up. Honestly, I just, I love everything about this book. I love Joe. I love the world that they built, the villains here. I... I cannot wait for this series to wrap up so that I can reread it all the way through again. Um, I think that's going to help a lot of people uh, to really enjoy the series a little bit more. Uh, Not that the series is bad at all. It's not. It's one of my favorites that DC has put out in years. But the uh, sporadic schedule, the sporadic release schedule has really hurt it. So I'm hoping that a read-through all the way through will help it uh, flow a little bit better. But still, an incredible book, my favorite of last week, but let's get into this week's books. This week is a doozy. We've got four, eight, we got 12 books for you this week, folks. 12 books. You heard me right. Let's just go ahead and roll into them. We got a lot to check out. Kicking things off with Batman the Detective number one, written by Tom Taylor, art by Andy Kubert. I am going to put this on here and just let you know, I am not planning on picking up this book as a like as a whole, as a series. Um, I am willing to give Tom Taylor the benefit of the doubt because he is incredible. He's amazing. But I just, it's another Bat title, honestly. Like, I am, you know, if you're a fan of Batman, if you're a fan of Bat titles, if you can't get enough Batman titles, uh, you are probably really excited about this one. Uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Detective, Part 1. An epic tale begins that will take Batman on a harrowing, action-packed European adventure in a new miniseries by superstar creators Tom Taylor and Andy Kubert. A horrifying tragedy in the United Kingdom sends a very personal and deadly message to the Dark Knight, one that will draw Batman out of Gotham City to investigate. From the moment he lands in Europe, Batman will face a difficult investigation and unheard-of adversaries, and find the assistance of a partner once more, all in the hunt for the villain known as Equilibrium. New villains, new allies, a thrilling overseas adventure begins for the Dark Knight, starting with an extra-sized 26-page debut story. So again, if you are a Bat fan, if you cannot get enough Bat books in your list, uh, have at it. Next up, we have Iron Man number 8. This is written by Christopher Cantwell with art this time around by Angel Unzueta. And... I am really hoping that we get some kind of um, some kind of resolution here. We know that things are ramping up. Korvac's uh, plot is about to uh, reach its climax, and I am excited to see how they wrap everything up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. 
Tony Stark has vanished in the middle of outer space, and his friends are moments away from death at Korvac's hands. It's up to a shell-shocked Hellcat to dig deep into her mind with the help of an old and psychic mentor, Moondragon, who reaches across the universe to help Patsy reclaim the once-powerful mental abilities she left behind. But to reignite those powers, Hellcat is going to have to face some pretty frightening demons in her past, one of them literally the son of Satan himself. That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> that is a lot of plates spinning for this, but Christopher Cantwell has done an incredible job with this book so far, and I'm excited to see what they do with this issue. Next up, we have Challenge of the Super Sons, number one of, I believe, seven? Yeah, one of seven, uh, written by Peter J. Tomasi with art by Max Rayner. Um, if you're a Super Sons fan like I am, this is an easy pickup. I really love John and Damien together. The book shows them at their proper ages, especially John. I'm looking forward to picking this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The boys are back. Picking up where the sensational adventures of the Super Sons left off, the sons of Batman and Superman are back in the spotlight and ready to give evil a good spanking. But are Robin and Superboy in over their heads this time? A mysterious woman from beyond time has appeared to the DCU's favorite sons, and her arrival heralds certain doom, that's a hint everyone, of things to come. In fact, it seems she sent the boys on a bogus journey that they've already returned from. Huh? What did the boys learn when they were whisked away? Why on earth do they have to save the Flash from instant death? Tune in for the first chapter in the most epic odyssey Robin and Superboy have ever been on. So yeah, this sounds very interesting. Um, sounds like a fun time loop story. Really looking forward to this. Next up, we have Thor and Loki Double Trouble number 2, written by Mariko Tamaki with art by Gurihiru. I will say, I'm just going to put this out there, um, if you were expecting this to be closer to Superman Smashes the Clan, this is not for you. If you were expecting this more to be closer to Spider-Man and Venom Double Trouble, this is exactly what you're expecting. I will say I hadn't read... Uh, Spider-Man Venom Double Trouble, but going back and reading it, it's exactly the same uh, tone. But still, Mariko Tamaki is amazing. I love Gurihiro's art, especially their take on these characters. They always throw a little something in extra when they're redesigning these characters. So uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Anarchy in Asgard. Loki has summoned a serpent set on city smashing, and now Thor has to clean up his mess again so yeah short sweet simple to the point really really fun story next up we have american vampire 1976 number seven also known as american vampire 1976 family trees uh this is written by scott snyder with art by Fran. oh my god by uh, francesco francavilla tula lote and ricardo lopez ortiz uh this looks like we are taking a brief detour before we get into the climax of this story uh Looks like it's going to be some kind of a, uh, a, again, like a side story, a pit stop. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Part 7. Before Skinner and Pearl reunited and the Beast returned. Before 1976, the fight to protect humanity persisted. 
This special anthology issue presents new stories from the Unseen Era between American Vampire Second Cycle and American Vampire 1976, bridging the VMS's turbulent past with a nation's uncertain future. Jim Book and Pearl will test their new partnership on a mission to uncover new DNA technology in the fight against the Beast. Travis and Gus enjoy a rare, carefree moment in exile, and a deathbed vision reveals the truth about George Washington's pact with the Council of Firsts and America's role as a haven for persecuted monsters. So this is going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting read, especially knowing what we know now about Jim Book from pr- the previous issue. No spoilers, but um, I'm looking forward to this for sure. Next up, we have Spider-Man: Spider's Shadow number one. This is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Pasquale Ferry. This is, for all intents and purposes, if Spider-Man became Venom. Pretty simple concept, but I have faith in both of these creators. They're both incredible. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. What if Peter Parker became Venom? Peter Parker once put on an alien suit that nearly destroyed his life. But what if he'd never taken it off? Ignoring every warning, Spidey embraces the Dark Symbiote. Haunted by terrible nightmares and exhausted by an endless barrage of bad guys, Peter can't seem to catch a break these days. So when the Hobgoblin attacks, he finds a hero at the end of his rope and vulnerable to new dark impulses. So that sounds awesome. Um, again, you know, Chip Zdarsky works really well with her or with um, with what if stories having to do with Peter Parker. So I'm excited to pick this up for sure. Next up, we have Wonder Woman number 771 written by Jordi Belair and uh, Becky Cloonan, as well as Michael Conrad with art by Paulina Ganushow and Travis Moore. I really, really dug the first issue for this new arc. Um, just so good. Just fantastic. Uh, Wonder Woman and Asgard. What, can, what more could you want? Uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Wonder Woman's adventures through the sphere of the gods continue as she embarks on a quest with the cunning Radishok to search for answers. Something is changing the rules of the Norse afterlife, and it's up to our hero to set things right. Now she must face warriors and beasts of mythic proportions, starting with the Nidhogg. Can our Amazon princess survive the staggering serpent? Meanwhile, in a seemingly simpler time in our hero's life, a younger Diana continues her journey to uncover the secret behind the scriptures that hold the hidden history of Themyscira. Is she ready for the truth, or will it change her perception of paradise forever? So yeah, um, I will say I ended up you know, not enjoying the backup as much as the main story, but I still dug it. I still like it. I'm still very excited to pick this issue up. Next up, we have Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, number four, written by Larry Hama with art by David Wachter. This has been great from start to finish. Um, last three issues have been fantastic. I can't wait to see where this next issue goes. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Secrets of the Heavenly Dragons. The true nature of the dragons of heaven are revealed, but to who and why? And what will be done with this cursed knowledge? Danny fights for sanity of a world gone mad. The identity of the mysterious Herald of the Eighth Kingdom's onslaught is exposed. So yeah, it... 
Sounds awesome. The book's been so good so far, and I cannot wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Superman number 30. This is written by Sean Lewis and Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Scott God- Scott Godlewski and Sammy Bosry. Uh, this is continuing on this new uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson era for Superman. Really liked the intro to it, the Golden Age two-parter. I am just very happy that Superman is still around and that it's not a John, this version of John Kent, you know, show. I am interested to see this Tales of Metropolis. As I talked about last time, I wasn't a huge fan of the uh, second Tales of Metropolis. Hopefully this one, this one will uh, be a bit better for me personally, but let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The One Who Fell, Part 1, slash Tales of Metropolis. Superman has received a signal from distant space. An old friend is in deep trouble, and only the Man of Steel can help him. By the time Superman and his son get there, though, the alien who sent the signal is nowhere to be found, and his people appear to be enthralled by a shamanistic storyteller who warns of an ancient grudge with the malevolent shadow breed. This leaves Clark and Jonathan Kent to ponder just who sent them the distress message, but before they can find the answer, they'll discover that an ancient grudge still has very current consequences. Meanwhile, in the Tales of Metropolis backup story, it's the return of Ambush Bug? Say it ain't so! So yeah, I am... uh, I am very excited to be reading Superman again. Uh, It has been a bit of a drought for me, as I have talked about, made it very clear in this podcast, I was not a huge fan of... um, of Brian Michael Bendis's run with the character. So I'm very much excited to jump back in with Superman. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Daredevil number 29. This is written by Chip Zdarsky with art, of course, by Marco Cicchetto. This is continuing on the Daredevil is Electra storyline. And I love it, man. I love this so much. I really, really, I just, oh, it's so good. Daredevil's been fantastic. Um, if you go go back a couple episodes, it took the top spot for my uh, top five comics you should be reading this year, and that has not changed one little bit in the weeks that have passed since that episode released. Definitely pick this up. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Black Kitchen, Part 3. The truth is finally out. Electra is Daredevil. Having taken up the cowl in the club in Matt Murdock's absence, Elektra, the deadliest assassin in the Marvel Universe, has a long road ahead as she works to protect the legacy of the man without fear. Old foes, new faces, lost loves. After the past six months, just imagine what secret superstar creators Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto have up their sleeves. That sounds like a challenge. Uh, <laughs> Really excited to see what else Zadarsky and Chiquetto have up their sleeves bringing into Daredevil's um, mythos. So let's just keep this ball rolling. I don't want them to come off of Daredevil for a very long time. I've been loving the book and I can't wait to pick this issue up. Next up, we have Batman Urban Legends number two. This is written by Brandon Thomas. Cecil Castellucci, Matthew Rosenberg, and Chip Zdarsky, with art by Eddie Barrows, Ryan Benjamin, Max Dunbar, and Marguerite Savage. This is issue two of that anthology series. 
And as if you remember, I really, really enjoyed the first issue of Batman Urban Legends, and I am looking forward to picking this up as well. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Red Hood Part 2 slash Grifter Part 2 slash Outsiders Part 2 slash Oracle. The new Batman anthology series continues. In part two of Chip Zdarsky and Eddie Barrow's epic Batman Red Hood story, Jason Todd has taken a man's life, and now his mission to keep the dead man's young son safe. But Batman plans to take down Jason before he can make another mistake. Then, in chapter two of Matthew Rosenberg and Ryan Benjamin's senses-shattering tale, Cole Cash earns his pay as personal bodyguard to billionaire Lucius Fox. But what led him to Gotham in the first place? How does the mysterious Halo Corporation play into it all? And which Bat Family character does he have an unfortunate meeting with in this chapter? And in part two of Brandon Thomas and Max Dunbar's epic Outsiders story, See Katana's perspective on what brought the Outsiders to Japan, who wants her dead, and what her ultimate punishment will be for no longer having her husband's spirit in the Soul Taker Sword. Plus, Barbara Gordon has identified a citywide system hack from a foe she faced before as Batgirl, but this time around, Babs may have found a way to defeat her for good as Oracle. So that sounds awesome. All of these sound fantastic. Um, I'm hoping that we get some Tim Drake in this somewhere, whether it's in the Red Hood story or this mysterious Bat family character that Grifter runs into. Fingers crossed for some Tim Drake. But finally, the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is, of course, Thor number 14, written by Donny Cates, art by Nick Klein. This... Ladies and gentlemen, is the finale to the Prey arc. We don't know where Thor is going next. Um, with King and Black wrapping up this week as well, Donny Cates is in kind of a flashpoint. We're still waiting on what his next series is going to be. So I'm very excited to read this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Prey. Finale. The finale of Prey and the fight of Thor's life. Old Father Thor breaks out of his prison, but Donald Blake has amassed more power than the King of Asgard can know. One thing is certain. When the hammer comes down, only one man will remain standing. Big action and big stakes are the Donny Cates and Nick Klein special, but you've never seen them like this before. This is the issue you can't miss. Sure sounds like a finale issue. I am very much looking forward to seeing how they wrap this all up. I'm very much looking forward to seeing where they take Thor next. And I don't know what they're going to do with this with this version of Donald Blake now. Um, he seems like he is not in a position to make it out of this if they do end up wrapping it up with a Thor victory. It feels like Donald Blake's, you know, go the way of the dinosaurs, but I wouldn't mind keeping him around as a uh, recurring rogue for Thor, having him be that dark reflection. So uh, that does it for this week's Comics Countdown. Like I said, a lot of books this week. So let's go ahead and run them back real quick. First off, we have Batman the Detective number one, Iron Man number eight, Challenge of the Super Sons number one, Thor and Loki Double Trouble number two, American Vampire 1976 number seven, Spider-Man Spider's Shadow number one, 
Wonder Woman 771, Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon number 4, Superman number 30, Daredevil number 29, Batman Urban Legends number 2, and Thor number 14. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, please feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and I would love to hear what you think of the show. If you do give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it. I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write whatever you want. You give me that five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and I will read it here. You can join the likes of our Magnificent Seven. That includes Seafire ND, Matt Draper, uh, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Burrito Man 88 Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, and Brian. I want to say a big thank you to these gentlemen for their reviews and i can't wait to hear yours and honestly subscriptions reviews they really do help me out really helps the podcast out kind of raises our stock in the podcasting space and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you also if you want to be part of our geeksplain mailback if you if you have a question for me if you want you know a quick pitch my opinion or you know maybe some comic recommendations that i haven't gotten to on the podcast yet feel free to email me send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com and put mailbag in the subject header i'll read your emails here on the podcast and i will answer them and if you want to keep up to date with the podcast you want to participate in polls uh recently i did an ama on our twitter so if you want to be part of that you want to keep up to date with the podcast feel free to follow us on instagram and twitter that's at geeksplained pod at geeksplained pod uh we have finally reached 100 followers on twitter thank you so much to everyone who has um gifted this podcast with a follow on twitter means a lot to me means a lot to uh grow the audience for this podcast this is a big year coming up we got a lot in store we got a lot in the tank so i can't wait to share that all with you and i'm actually happy to plug a couple other podcasts on this week's episode um i was very fortunate and thankful to be brought on to not one but two podcasts over the past week and those podcasts are dropping their episodes featuring yours truly this week first off deep in some thoughts with one and producer Chris. Uh, I have been friends with these guys for years and years and years, so it was amazing to finally sit down with them. We talked nerd stuff, we talked podcast stuff, we talked about my journey as a voice actor, just had a great conversation, so check them out. They're on pretty much every podcasting platform as well as YouTube, so subscribe to their YouTube channel, check them out in podcast audio form, they're amazing, and also check out the Comics Collective. We had a conversation over the past week talking Superman, where we went over Superman Birthright as well as two other Superman books that are very near and dear to my heart. If you want to find out what books those are, go check out their episode from this week. Uh, Dallas and Alexis are amazing. We had a blast talking about pretty much anything and everything when it came to nerd stuff. It started off as a Superman-only chat and just evolved into 
all different kinds of madness. It was amazing. I had such a fun time. Uh, they're incredible. Their podcast is great. So go check them out. You can also find their podcast on pretty much any podcasting platform. So again, make sure you subscribe to Deepen Some Thoughts as well as the Comics Collective. Check out their episodes this week for three times the Geek Explain goodness. And I want to say a big thank you to Juan, producer Chris, Dallas, and Alexis for having me on their shows. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Tune in next week for an episode that I am uh, I'm pretty excited about. It's covering a topic that I haven't really touched on yet on this channel, but if you're a fan of video games, if you're a fan of video game adaptations, you might have a clue as to what is dropping next week. So tune in for that same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Wear a mask, stay safe, and we will see you next time.